Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and return Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to let me know over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com or connect with me on Instagram at MyPeaceCorpsStory or on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story. Additionally, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the show. Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. And speaking of five-star reviews, I would like to give a special shout-out to Ariana Admirer, who says, Incredible show, five stars. I'm an aspiring PCV who is currently in the application process, and this podcast has been extremely beneficial. Every story is unique, so I've been trying to hear as many experiences as I can, so that I can have a firmer understanding of being a Peace Corps volunteer. It has also been providing me with something additional to look forward to each week while waiting to hear back from my PO. Thank you for continuing to live out the mission of the Peace Corps, and I hope that I will be able to share my own story with the world. Well, Ariana admirer, just let me know, and hopefully I can help you share your story. On this episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast, I talked to Zachary Siegel, who served in Swaziland from 2015 to 2017 as a youth development volunteer. He did a wide range of work as a volunteer, from teaching English to building libraries. We talk about his service, his work, and much more. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. My name is Zachary Siegel, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Zach, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Tyler. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, I'm so glad to have you sitting here at my dining room table, a.k.a. the My Peace Corps Story Podcast studio. For those listening, I don't know if you imagine me recording in a big, fancy studio, uh, but this production is very uh, Peace Corps-esque, two microphones and a recorder, but it works. Uh, I've, I've gotten many compliments on on the audio, I you know I'm 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 proud of it. You know I don't I don't we don't need all that fancy stuff, right? Yeah, it's pretty pretty minimalist, but if it gets the job done, it works. Yeah, let's let's rather than talking about me and my equipment <laughs> and my my podcast studio, let's talk about you and your service. So start off by letting everybody know who is Zachary, uh, where are you from, uh, your background, and where did you serve, and what were you doing as a Peace Corps volunteer. Right. So my name is Zachary Siegel. I'm proudly from Silver Spring, Maryland. In 2015, I left to go to the kingdom of Swaziland. I was a youth and development volunteer. I was, uh, in, I was training for about three months in, near the capital of Swaziland, a place called um, uh, Baban. And I was sent to a very rural village in the southeast of the country, pretty close to the South African border. And I was not assigned as an education volunteer, but the community I was in had a shortage of teachers. And there was one school, um, seven classrooms, about 220 children. And the year before I joined the Peace Corps, I was teaching in D.C. through AmeriCorps. So I had some educational background 
And I decided to give that a whirl because that's not what I was assigned to do, but that's kind of what the community needed. So upon arrival, I taught English and math to fourth grade and seventh grade. Um, I also had like a life skills course, kind of like a sex ed. And other days um, I would work in like a community garden that we had down by a riverbed. Um, I should let you know that where I was, it was a place called Ngonini in the southeast of Swaziland. And it was undergoing a very serious drought, which has gotten a little bit better in 2017 and 2018. But by like October, November of 2015 was, was pretty severe. Um, I guess one, one, st- one way I can phrase it is in the month I got back from Peace Corps and came back to Washington, D.C., I saw more rain in that one month than I saw in my entire two years in Swaziland. So uh, gardening was pretty tricky, and um, I normally just like to brag about the ways in which I was successful and the, the crops we yielded, but um, there's a lot of failure early on. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably the work that I'm the most proud of was there was, um, in the community next door, a nurse organized a group of about 15 um, HIV slash AIDS positive folks and they were very interested in doing some uh, small business types of projects. And during my original three months of training with the Peace Corps, they taught us how to make an aloe-based Vaseline. So I knew how to do that. And um, the community I was in was um, very dry, very hilly, a lot of brown and manila colors. But the one plant that grew there with with complete ease was aloe and aloe vera. Hmm. You'd aloe vera for days. So um, we, I pretty much used the recipe that Peace Corps taught me, and I cooked with these folks, and they started selling it um, just really locally. And pretty much the money went for things like um, going to the clinic, um, clothes for their kids and grandkids because some of them were grandparents. Um, and that, that really got underway maybe like 10 months into my Peace Corps service. And by the end, before I left, we had also expanded to making like a liquid soap um, out of various chemicals that they could buy at a nearby market. Um, So that's probably the work I'm the most proud of. But there was also, you know, snippets of we had a a, a playground building um, weekend where we made a playground at the school. We also um, worked through a program called Books for Africa and had a library started uh, in the community. And... I did, I did send you a couple photos from the library, and one of my favorite memories is um, the first time the kids saw this library, just because re- there's not much of a culture of reading in Swaziland, so the idea that like that kids could have books and, like, and bring them home, and that it was an area where there was uh, like unique paintings done by local Swazi artists kind of re- stood out, I suppose, amongst the, the backdrop of, of rolling... Um, dark brown and light brown hills mm-hmm. um, and like I'm trying to think of the colors we had on the outside of this library we painted um, like red yellow blue letters of the alphabet numbers and on the inside um, I, I I asked some friends of friends who were Swazi artists in the capital um, who were pretty great artists and they they painted whatever they wanted on all the walls except the one request I had was on one of the walls because they just kind of cross a Swazi flag and an American flag. Just so even after I'm gone, like there's there's some like, I'm a proud American and I just wanted to make sure there was one American flag 
somewhere in the community. It sounds like you did a lot of various projects, like most volunteers tend to do. And I'm, you know, I'm just envisioning this bright, beautifully colored building, you know, against that that brown uh, backdrop where only aloe grows. How how big was this community, and what was your house like? I think a lot of people when they think, oh, volunteer living in Africa, it's mud hut, thatch roof. What was it like for you? Um, for me, it was a large concrete home, um, concrete um, concrete blocks plastered so it was all smooth and even on the outsides and there was a corrugated iron roof um, it was pretty spacious I mean it was bigger than any dorm I ever had in, in college probably two two large rooms one kind of like area where I had a bedroom and then from the rafters which were just logs supporting the corrugated iron roof I hung strings down and and the strings held up a um, a, lo- a long stick parallel to the floor, and I kind of hung my clothes from that with clothes hangers, and I had a hammock in there, and that was kind of where I would relax and read. And then the other room was kind of my kitchen area where I had a table, my Peace Corps issue stove with two burners, some shelves that I made. Um, there was like a little closet-sized room where I would bucket bathe. Um, there's no electricity or running water in this. I probably should get that out of the way. There was not electricity or running water where I was. And then uh, maybe like the piece de resistance, if that applies to, to architecture, was out of veranda. That was probably only maybe like six feet long and maybe five feet wide, but it was covered and it it um, faced um, it faced due west. So I was in what is what what a what was a desert, and it was always pretty cool in the afternoons. And I would always bring a chair out there and kind of put my feet up. And at nights, maybe um, listen to the radio because I had a little battery-powered radio, um, and that's that's where where I was probably at my happiest was sitting out on that veranda, kind of enjoying like a cool African like windy evening. Mm-hmm. Thank you for for painting that very descriptive <laughs> picture. You know the, those happy evenings of you, you know, listening to the radio, watching the sunset. Uh, do you have another? Uh, happy memory or favorite memory and this doesn't have to be related to your work Uh, it can be a a cultural experience or a connection that you made that comes to mind and I I caveat this knowing that it's very difficult sometimes to pick that one happy memory so if you think of two share two Uh, what 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 do you start thinking about when I when I pose this question to you well I think I was I was proudest when there, I would have an interaction with a Swazi. Maybe it wasn't even in my community, but we kind of saw across our, our different backgrounds and just kind of appreciated the humanity within each other. For instance, um, like if you meet an American at a party or something, you might, I don't know, bring up Game of Thrones or talk about current events, but you can't really, like, you can't speak about that to subsistence farmers who don't have access to electricity. But once my garden kind of got underway, I would kind of show my techniques and share what I was doing with the nearby farmers. And we'd talk a lot about what we were gardening and what crops we were growing and what was going well. And they wanted to come tour my little plot and I would tour theirs. And um, I, I just really appreciated kind of us just being two people doing our best to raise crops 
Um, not not an American and a Swazi, but just two people, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And what were your your difficulties uh, while in Swaziland? Maybe related to that fact that you couldn't talk about, you know, Game of Thrones and these commonalities of these cultural differences that you had as you were trying to connect with your community and have success as a volunteer? Um, that's a pretty good question. Um, I would like to say before I say any negative things that um, I had a very positive, overall positive experience. One thing that was kind of tricky was folks' uh, perception of the United States. There's that old saying that the streets are paved with gold that I think probably dates to the 1800s, but many Swazis truly believe that. And um, I, I would get I would get asks for money um, on a seemingly daily basis. And at first, it, I mean, it's it's really it's no issue. And I would do my best to explain, like, hey, I'm I'm a volunteer. Like, I'm I'm here to um, do community based projects. I'm very happy to work with you. If you have a vision you want to see in your community, if there's something I can give my time and my labor to, I'd be incredibly happy to do so. Um, and I would explain that. And there was certainly a, a minority in the community, um, community of about 600 folks, and. Um, pretty much day after day, they would just still ask. I don't think they really believed that I wasn't there to give money, but they would just kind of ask um, day after day. And probably after about a year and a half, if you've had a conversation with someone maybe like four times a week where they ask for money and they say no, probably towards the towards the end of my service, I would pretty much just shake my head or maybe if I, I found like some washers from like a construction project, I would just like those little metal circles with mm-hmm. nothing in, in the middle. I'll just give them that and say, yeah, it is American money. I know that morally and ethically that's probably messed up, <laughs> but um, I just, that's one way I coped with it. And I suppose because you asked um, issues or, or, or troubles that I had, this isn't related to culture, but one thing I have to bring up was the heat. Um, it was pretty hot. Um, like how how hot? Celsius or Fahrenheit, because Peace Corps volunteers are good with Celsius uh, after being abroad. But well, let's go Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit for, for all of for your the, listeners. The, yeah, the, the <laughs> listeners, just so they know. Um, most days, I would wake up and it would be in the low 80s, like in the early morning, like dusk time, dawn time, and by the afternoon, maybe like 11 a.m. to pretty much 4:30 p.m., you'd be dancing in the high 90s, low hundreds, um, and I, I would sweat indoors. I would sweat at the school. If I had to walk anywhere, um, I, would, I would get pretty gross. And I distinctly remember times when I would have done anything for what we Americans consider room temperature water. Because even my water indoors, yes, it was in the shade, but it was pretty hot still. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming you don't miss the, the heat uh, from, from your time in Swaziland. I don't, know. <laughs> But what what do you miss from your your time serving there as a volunteer? I miss a lot of things. Um, First and foremost on my mind is I was placed on kind of with a homestead, at least in Swaziland. You don't live in individualized plots that we might you might live in in an American city or even in a rural area. You're kind of assigned to a family, and that family has its own large enclosure. And I was assigned to the Mabaso family and the grandmother had her own garden, and probably the, it was the most successful garden in the entire uh, community. And I would 
go to the market every now and then and I would get groceries, like kind of things like canned goods that she couldn't grow herself. And I would give those to her and she would kind of trade me deliciously cooked meals with fresh veggies, um, fresh chicken. And I miss the food for sure. Um, she even had her own kind of like red pepper flakes that she would grow. And, well, she would grow peppers and then bake them in the sun, and you'd have red pepper flakes. And I'd put that on everything, and I miss that delicious food. Um, another thing that I strongly miss, I suppose, is almost like a sense of purpose. Um, I, I really enjoyed feeling like the work that I was doing had potential to help those around me. Um, I really liked being an ambassador of America. I kind of liked being the face of the United States in my community and having people ask questions about who is this Obama character that they keep hearing about and things like that. And I truly miss that because I've, I've come back and before this interview started, I told you I'm in graduate school. And um, while that's its, its own unique experience, it, it's just not as fulfilling as the work I was doing in Swaziland was. Mm-hmm. I can most definitely relate to that. And every day what you had to do was for for me it was it was simple but but beautiful it's my my job is to be here to experience this culture and try to make my community a little bit better or empower somebody to make their life a little bit better and that that was it that was the the goal for the day was just experience my community and try to make it a little bit better and if you get a small victory you're a king yeah and Mm -hmm. it, it, it was great and then you come back to the united states and it's that rat race of a million different things every single day of trying to balance them all. So I can definitely relate to that. Going back to food. Uh, I, I love food. I mean, who doesn't like everyone says, Oh, I love food. I mean, really, have you ever met anybody who says they don't really love food? <laughs> Maybe they don't have the most refined taste in food. Maybe they just love Doritos, but I mean, who doesn't love Doritos? Uh, what was the food? Like you talked about the pepper mm. flakes, but what was the cuisine? Like, cause I know maybe even it varied within Swaziland of, across the cultures, but what were you eating day to day? I can say it, it doesn't vary across culture, and part of its, its biggest feature is the fact that it, there's no variance at all. There's kind of like the Swazi meal, um, and that consists of like a ground maize meal, um, which is kind of like a loaf. Um, some Americans might think it's kind of like grits. That if you're lucky and have money for it, either like goat, chicken, or beef associated with that, but most folks don't, so beans are kind of your protein. Then just like a, a chopped salad of things like carrot, cabbage, and maybe beets. Um, and that's kind of like the meal. But I'm an American. I need some variance in my life. So most mornings I would wake up and either kind of make um, just like a veggie veggie omelet with like green pepper onion and tomato and some eggs on my peace corps stove um or maybe just like bread pb and j's um call me crazy but in swaziland they had delicious ramen like ramen noodles so i would go to a market and buy that in bulk and it was with like weird flavors like um spicy spicy thai chicken flavor that you just can't find in america and it probably, there's no way it was healthy for me, but it was distinctly <laughs> delicious and tangy and good. And then for, for suppers, um, the grandmother on the homestead I was at would make some pretty excellent meals. And sometimes 
I would maybe bring her like canned tuna. And then all of a sudden she would mix that with some spinach she grew and like some ground peanuts um, and even some cassava and uh, with rice. And that was a pretty gnarly and delicious dish. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I remember about the food. But um, there's a strong sense in Swazi culture of, of staple traditions, including staple foods. And that dish I mentioned earlier of, of the ground maize meal, beans and veggies, and hopefully meat, a Swazi can eat that three meals a day for the rest of their life and be happy. That's it. That's the bee's knees. And what were some of those other cultural or traditions? I mean, I don't really, I know nothing about Swaziland. <laughs> I know where it is on a map. Uh, but other than that, I mean, what was the predominant religion? Uh, what even is uh, the language? I mean, it's an English-speaking country, is it? Uh, yes, part of the British Commonwealth. English right. is an official language. Yeah, but the, what's the, the local language? It's called Siswati. Mm-hmm. Um, very closer closer to Zulu than Spanish is to Portuguese. Um, and it's it's an absolute monarchy. I believe the last one remaining on the continent of Africa and tradition and culture is kind of the name of the game there. Like it, I, I personally think that you had the British come in and colonize and take a lot of things out of the country. But I think the one thing that the people really valued was their language and their cultures and their traditions. And I suppose when everything else is taken away from you, that's, that's something that's very valuable and precious. And even though they're not um, subjugated by the British to this day, they are incredibly proud of their culture. And I mentioned earlier it's an absolute monarchy. So power stems from one man. I didn't say one person. I said one man at the top. And um, that kind of stems down to each community, like at, at each school. Sometimes there's women head teachers, like principals, but most often it's a man. And power comes from one figure and not collective action. In churches, it's that way. Um, even in families, it's that way most often with the father. And if, if you're a fan of history, there's kind of like two different, well, there's more than two, but there's like a great man notion of history where we think great individuals like are, are either benevolent or malicious and they are what all power stems from. And that is still the belief to this day in Swaziland. Um, Mm. there's a lot of folks who, um, maybe maybe they're girls or um, maybe they have some kind of disability or they're poor and they think that life is predetermined and that that's the way things will always be. And um, on the vice versa, maybe if you were born into a family and your father was one of these great men, that you will be one of these great men and you're entitled to do so. Um, so there's not, there's not a strong sense of individual action determining the future. There's a lot of folks who believe in fate. Um, and that was one thing that I noticed as an American um, was was interesting. For instance, I don't consider myself a, a muscular or, or overtly healthy person, but while in Peace Corps, I'll do sets of push-ups each morning, just, I don't know, to stay in shape. And some Swazis would often say... Um, they would, make, they would make the argument that because, because I had a little bit of muscle that I was able to do push-ups. And I, was, I, I struggled to convince them. I was like, no, the only way to build muscle mass is do a lot of push-ups the other way around. Do the push-ups and then the muscles will come. And they thought, no, it's, 
you were born with muscles, so you have the ability to do push-ups. And did that also stem into the majority of your projects? Because I know that's something that I came up against. You know, it's God willing. Everything is God willing. God willing, yeah. Uh, so how did how did you counteract that in trying to give them power and instill like, you know, you can, you can make tomorrow a little bit better by planning today. Um, that's a really great question and is really at the heart of not just a lot of my projects that I try to do in Swaziland, but a lot of other volunteers that I observed in my cohort in Swaziland. I suppose the biggest danger that I saw was the danger that folks might see any successes from projects stemming from me as a white man coming from America, a rich country. And I really did my best to lead from behind. So I mentioned earlier, there was this um, aloe growing project. I went to town, like the, the market town, and there's a bank in Swaziland called Swazi Bank. And I invited them to come and try to teach budgeting and um, financial planning to this business. And I really wanted them to teach it just because I feared it, the more I taught and the more active role I took that people would think that the project was, my, my name there was Cibu Ciso. Um, so they would think, oh, this is like Cibu Ciso's work. So I wanted Swazis to explain it to other Swazis in terms that they would understand. And I did my best to really lead from behind if, if I was going to lead something just because the very second people saw a project as belonging to me, um, was the very second that would mean that as soon as I was gone, that project would cease to exist. Oh, that was that was Cibususo's work. That was the American's project. He's gone, so you don't have any license to continue that style of work. And that's that's something that I was always kind of concerned about. Mm-hmm. And along those same lines, um, is there something in particular that you learned from Peace Corps that you've taken with you? that you realized uh, from those two years? So many things. One thing is possibly how a lot of folks um, in America and in Swaziland don't ever explore much outside their own bubble. For instance, there was a game park not not very far from my village, Um but no one in my village ever took the time to visit. Like, it was free. And when, when you say game park, this is a wildlife preserve with animals. It was private, but there was a plethora of non-predatory animals. So mm-hmm. you had your, your giraffe, your zebra, ostrich. Um, there were probably some snakes there, so I guess, yeah, there were some predators. But um, I would go, you know, any time I could just for the day and just kind of walk around this this safe, like, gorgeous savanna. Um, but... a a lot of folks that grew up in this community, which is walking distance from this, not, not easy walking distance, but you know, it's, it's certainly manageable for folks to see these incredible things for free. Um, it interestingly mirrors something that I observed when I was teaching in Washington, D.C. Um, as I mentioned at the start, I'm a local, and, and before I joined the Peace Corps, I was teaching in D.C., and I know folks in D.C. who have grown up here and are maybe 30, 40 years old and have never gone to tour the monuments or seen the museums or just gone to look at Congress and just how close these incredibly interesting things are that um, that people never get an opportunity to go check out despite their close proximity and 
and how valuable an experience they might be. Mm-hmm. Did you ever bring anybody uh, along with you or try to convince some of your community members, like, you know, come with me, come see this thing? So um, it might be one of the photos that I sent you, but there were there was one uh, neighbor boy across the street who's he, he was he was in the family kind of like across the the road from my family's homestead and incredibly bright individual named Fana Tlamini. I don't know if I can say my name on the on on say his name on the podcast but um, you can give him a shout out yeah yeah if he ever hears this uh, I'm I'm incredibly proud of him and every now and then on whatsapp try and try and reach out but when I first arrived he was in I believe the seventh grade that doesn't necessarily determine someone someone's age in Swaziland um he was think maybe like 16 at the mm-hmm. time um but when i arrived into the country at my village he had just failed his final exam so that meant he had to repeat and i made him a promise as well as the the three older children on my homestead that if they if they pass their final examinations i will take them like i will i will like pay for the food for the day and we will go check out some giraffes some zebra and which is something they'd never done and at the end of 2016, I made this promise at the start of 2016. At the end, um, Fana, this boy I mentioned, and uh, the oldest boy on my homestead, both passed their final exams. And I was going to leave. Uh, my service was going to end in about six months. So I made a, a priority to bring them to this game park. And they absolutely loved it. We just kind of walked around and um, we even found like some giraffe femur bones, which are incredibly long. Yep, that's that's one of the photos you shared. Yeah, yeah. it's it, that's Fauna holding um, one of one of these giraffe femurs, and it was just an incredible day. And they were blown away because, of course, like in 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 Swazi folklore, there's uh, and and in culture and in, and in the the oral history, there's um, a, a beautiful relationship between like the people and the animals that inhabit the land. But they had never actually seen these animals with their own two eyes. And I was there and I got to watch them and cute's probably the best word I can use to describe just their awe. And they were maybe 17 or 18 at this time. And just like the wonder that these 18 year old boys had looking at um, live animals. And I suppose the, the bones of, of dead exotic safari animals. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's an experience right there. And you know, that they'll remember and maybe that they'll tell someone else in their community you need to go, you need to see, you know, we talk about these animals, we share these stories. They're just, they're down the road. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's one thing that I, that I, that I, um, hope they took away is like, I, I didn't do anything special. Mm-hmm. I just simply like chose to, to say early in the morning, all right, today's the day we're going to the game park. Like, are you willing, do you still want to come with me? And they said, yes, but there's nothing there's absolutely nothing stopping them from walking there any other day of the week. I mean, it's a very safe area. It's mm-hmm. you can you can walk it. I mean, the school that they both attend is much closer to this game park I'm referring to from where we live. So, I don't know. Do check it out after school or something. Um, so I I need to I need to ask if they've been back over WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we close up the show, is there? Anything else you want you want to share with the listeners of the My Peace Corps Story podcast? Uh, my listener base sort of spans the, the Peace Corps community of those trying to figure out Peace Corps is right for them, volunteers currently in their service, uh, 
you know, much like you probably passing the afternoon listening to a podcast, uh, they're listening to you right now, or those return volunteers that want to stay connected to their experience and their community. And that's sort of why I fell in love with this project of constantly reminding myself of my service and what I took out of it and what I wanted to bring into the United States. So do you have uh, anything to say to all or maybe maybe just one of those demographics? I do have two things to say. The first of which is it is such a large and all-encompassing experience, both with your professional future, your spiritual future, or, or not even future, but present and existence, that um, I highly recommend it because it's something great that you can do that no one can ever take away from you. I suppose I'm a big sports fan, and there's this football team called the San Francisco 49ers, and they win a Super Bowl, I think in the early 90s, and uh, their quarterback named Steve Young is holding the trophy, uh, the, the Super Bowl trophy, and he shouts, like, like, no one can ever take this away from us. And as I was flying home, I was just so happy with my experience, and that's how I felt, is like all these memories and these connections that I made with people, um, like that's, that's something beautiful that like I will cherish and be able to hold on to and continue to live with for the rest of my life. One, one additional thing, I guess addendum to that, that I w- would like to say is the experience that I had was, and I'm sure with all your volunteers, is incredibly unique to my village in Swaziland, especially given the fact that I was both white and a man. I think the experiences that other uh, Peace Corps volunteers in Swaziland have is certainly affected by who they are and where their background is, especially in a society so determined by fate um, in the way that people treat um, Americans of, of color and, um, and Americans that are women. And I suppose the other thing, like number point number two that I wanted to make is Peace Corps for me was not always easy and maybe was it only rarely actually fun but at no point did I ever regret going at no point did I ever regret choosing to get on the plane to go there and since coming back I'm, I'm just so incredibly happy that I did it and it's probably the biggest thing I've ever done in my life at which I have zero regrets about well thank you for coming on the show and in closing do you have a favorite local saying that you would like to share with us? I have so many. Um, I'll, can I? Will you permit me to say at least two? I'll give you. I'll give you two. You're a generous, man, Tyler. So the first is Nkosi Ami, Nkosi Ami, like my lord. And people would say it when maybe they thought the engine in the car was gonna break. Maybe they'd say it when it was hot outside. Just like, oh, my lord. And it was just kind of funny because you wouldn't say it in church and Swazis are very devout people and anytime they said it, it would make me laugh. And then I suppose the second, it's actually just a word. It's called tikoloshi. And in that culture, it's like a small uh, magic spewing goblin. <laughs> kind of not, not, a, not a chupacabra, but like of that fame in Swazi culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes, some, every now and then, if someone was acting weird, I would call a Swazi Tikoloshi and the other Swazis would laugh. And to this day, I, I should probably make uh, maybe like an email, like a Tikoloshi at gmail.com just for personal use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for sharing those uh, two local sayings with us. And thank you for spending uh, a little bit of your day uh, sharing your experience in Swaziland. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, Tyler, it's been an honor. And you've you've made me a devout listener and I'm going to binge listen to all your previous ones. Well, I look forward uh, to hearing uh, your reviews and reactions. And I think you can definitely tell that I've gotten a little bit better at this uh, along the way. So episode one is going to be a little bit uh, different than your episode. (laughs) Okay. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks again, Tyler. And there you have it. Another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast to make sure that you receive a new episode every single week when I release them. Until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours?